0: Here,
1: all right five four three two one welcome back everybody to another episode of the cromcast i am luke i'm josh i am jonathan and together we three are uh moving our way down the hard-boiled alley the uh the noir road uh, I don't know some some back alley where some bad stuffs gonna ultimately go down. Yeah, some bad bad decisions are gonna be
2: made. There's a lot of garbage cans missing their lid. There's a garbage bin over there where the corners kind of rusted out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's pizza leaking out of the edge of it.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a there's a big old rat that's sort of like scurrying around on the back side of the the can and you can't you can't see it but you can hear it yeah. and that just adds to the ambiance. What level of rain are we talking about? You think? a soft pattering okay. but it, it's enough to create sort of uh, mm-hmm. like a, a scintillating like color to the to the 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 fluorescent lights that are reflecting off of the puddles of water yeah. in the alley
2: also kind of just broken, broke, enough to so. like wet our coat and our hat and kind of make us uncomfortable yes
1: yeah, that worst yeah
0: there's broken pearls and a pool of blood
2: Whoa, we Excellent. took a wrong yeah. turn. We're in Crime nope. Alley now. This
0: is, not, this is Crime Alley. <laughs>
1: not. Uh, so, so yeah, that's where we're at tonight. We are wrapping up uh, Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep. So that must mean that it is the fourth episode of the 14th season. That's where we're at here with with the Chromecast, if, uh, if anybody's keeping count. But if you're listening in sequence, we're, we're talking about the back half of uh, – the the Philip Marlowe uh, debut. We're we're getting into some shenanigans here, and this story. I like the way that you just sort of get lost in it. I know we'll talk about it ultimately, but uh, I don't even know. Like you would be hard pressed to explain this stuff, like to to, to just somebody that is a random passerby, if you were to stop somebody and say, let me tell you about this awesome book that I just read, The Big Sleep, and you tried to explain the plot within about 30 seconds, uh, the, the listener's eyes would just glaze over. And it's kind of, I know we talked about this last episode, John ended with a remark or two about, you know, the, the, the the fact that the big Lebowski drew inspiration from, uh, Chandler's work and specifically the big sleep, it's that kind of story. It's a Coen Brothers esque, and I, I guess I guess the Coen Brothers are actually Chandler esque type type storytellers in their right, where it's all about the journey, right? It's 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 not about the destination. It's all about the the twists and turns.
0: Yeah, and we'll get there, but I think the the ultimate sort of conclusion to this story is not as satisfying necessarily as the road to get to it.
2: That's fair to say. But, the, but, That's but there are layers noir. even to
0: I'm sorry, John. I spoke over you.
2: Well, you're fine. That's part of being noir. Yeah. You, yeah. you get the yeah, answers, but you're not really you don't you didn't really want them.
1: Yeah, and it it does it does have notes of finality. It's not like the story just is, well, we're done. Okay, bye-bye. And there's like a, a dozen different plot threads that are unfulfilled. There's a handful of different plot threads that are that are unanswered. But by and large, the story reaches a, like some level of conclusion. It's just that it, it does so. And it's, uh, the, the more things, the more things change, the more things stay the same kind of feel. Uh, that's what plays out with this, With this story, which is actually, I I say that that's the same damn thing that we said at the end of uh, Red Harvest, actually, too, (laughs) which is maybe a trope that we're going to get into that that there's uh, just some fatality and inevitability to the story. And you just you just fight as much as you can. But ultimately, the story may not change after you've walked through your own little narrative.
0: Yeah, it's 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 cool. We're gonna get to a bunch of things uh, thematically that um, I'm really excited to talk about tonight.
1: Yeah, it's it's cool. Uh, I'm I am digging, digging, digging. Uh, Hard boiled road. It's it's super cool. Back
2: alley, Hard back alley back deals. Road, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, John. What are you drinking? Uh, I have Wild Turkey 101. If all I right. were gonna try and fit in with this story, I, I I don't know what do they drink the most in this story. Rye. rye yeah they have a lot of yeah. rye whiskey yeah so i'm probably I'm there probably
1: written house yeah it's a high rye but yeah probably like a something like that
0: i'll uh, turn my head and watch the watch the street while you while you make your pool <laughs> <All> right, you,
2: <laughs> what do you, you, you can't put alcohol and coffee in here <laughs> <laughs> which by the way we'll come
1: back to that i i've actually never done that i've never mixed bourbon and coffee so i'm curious to hear if either of you have an I, I can't see that that would taste good. I like both of those things, but I've never tried to make a coffee-based cocktail. I have had, of course, like coffee-based alcoholic beverages. like yeah. But, and, and Irish cream and like Irish coffee, that kind of stuff. But I've not poured bourbon or rye whiskey. Like like Irish whiskey is pretty sweet, so it works.
0: Yeah. Um, I've, I've used the bourbon cream uh, from Buffalo Trace in coffee, or especially around the holidays. Um, and it it does give it this kind of cloying sweet sweetness, um, but it's that's a good way to start your day.
1: <laughs> right,
0: right on. <laughs> the best part of waking up.
1: Yeah, Josh, <laughs> what are you what what are you currently drinking? Do you have any Irish cream or uh, or, or bourbon cream in your cup?
0: Nope, not right now. But I do have some uh, Seagram's ginger ale and 1792 small batch uh, bourbon from the uh, I think it's Old Fitzgerald Distillery. No, it's a, a Barton, Barton. Yeah. 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 That's right. Sorry about that. The Barton distillery and it's a good bourbon and I like it neat. And I like it, uh, in, in some ginger ale and it's, it's good, good to have. Um, and I want to give John a big thank you because he surprised me yesterday. I was out doing errands and he swung by with a really nice, uh, thoughtful present for me. Um, and we'll talk about the, the circumstances later. Uh, and a bottle of Wild Turkey 101, and unbeknownst to him, I had already purchased myself a bottle of Wild Turkey 101. So I ended up with 202 turkeys. <laughs> so, so thank you, buddy. You're welcome. I'm I'm well stocked.
1: Nice, dude. I uh, I happen to be drinking some uh, some some old granddad 100 proof, which which also came from John because I was I was pepper watching for him over the the the, the the summer vacation time. So uh, thanks for that, dude. I've got that on ice. I've got a little uh, – I shouldn't say a little bit. I've got a, a fair amount of that on ice. Uh, and uh, I've got some highlights too.
2: I had many thanks to pass out. I, I, you watched my pepper plantation, and Josh uh, gave me lumberjacking supplies. So I owed both my buddies at least a drink and uh, maybe several more. <laughs> I
0: I lumberjacked you good.
2: You did. I don't know if I like the way that you said that, but okay.
1: Awesome. Uh, so that's what we're drinking. Do we want to segue over to the one thing?
2: It's rock and roll.
1: All right. We'll do the one thing.
2: John, do you have a one thing to share with the class? I, I do. I think I have not talked about this before, but I think that Josh maybe has talked about it before. Uh, I have been thinking a lot about Sandman, the Neil Gaiman comic that came out from Vertigo uh, by way of DC in the past, in the late '80s, early '90s time frame. I have never read it before. In fact, had actively avoided it for quite some time. It had all of the accolades ever. I remember when I first got into comic books and I read Wizard magazine. On a monthly basis, they would talk a lot about how great Sandman was, and they would always rank it as sort of the best comic book ever. And I just I didn't understand what it was. I didn't understand the appeal. And I'm kind of sad that I held out for so long because it is a really great comic, has lots of great illusions. I think that reading it now in my mid-30s is maybe a good choice because I understand a lot of the things that they're trying to call back to, some of the historical things and literature things. Um, It's just a lot of fun. There's a lot of humor in it there's a lot of uh i guess just like really good allusions and just really evocative through pieces where you you're following sandman dream around and he's kind of learning all these hard life lessons and i don't really know how to explain. It. Josh you've read some of it? Uh you've read the first issue or two at least? Mhm. I have
0: uh I think the first issue of uh Sandman is one of the strongest debuts to any um comic book series that i've ever read it's yeah. it's amazing uh it does a great job setting the stage letting you know who the players are and presumably setting up storyline setting up story threads that will play out later in the series um, it's very very good
2: i agree uh the first one hooks you and then i feel like all of the trades that i've gone through they all have sort of distinct pitches i guess like they're they're their own set pieces Um, But without it feeling decompressed and right now we're kind of going through a lot of family stuff dream is part of a group called the endless who are Seven sort of mythical beings that are supersede. They even supersede like our gods that we create. There's dream destruction despair delight aka delirium desire and death Uh, that are all in this family together personified as brothers and sisters and they don't really get along and it's kind of fun to read so uh, if you haven't checked out sandman before it would be my recommendation that you do so
1: awesome dude very good what about you josh what's your one thing
0: i mean i'm reading some comic books and i'm reading two series kind of alternately right now because they are thematically somewhat similar to one another in in very broad ways and that is uh the sixth gun and uh preacher and i've read preacher before uh, a long time back i borrowed all the trades from from you luke um some time ago and hadn't revisited it in a while and uh reading the sixth gun kind of got me into the idea of you know weird westerns and i think that I think that both of these series fall into that broad overall category. And, um, so I've read the first volume of the six gun and I've read the first volume and change of, of preacher. And I'm kind of just going through them alternately for no real reason. I'm not like taking notes and comparing or anything like that, but it, it just seems like, I mean, preacher is, is way more, um, off the rails insane
2: i think than <laughs> six gun would you agree john oh yeah i mean you got you got arseface and uh the pope that shows up or not the pope but the cardinal that shows up at one point that just eats yeah. whole pies all the time yeah
0: you were blessed all are blessed um <laughs> and whereas the scene of killers feels like he would fit in the six gun
2: oh for sure yeah
0: Um, and so just reading these two series, uh, kind of one after another and reading them at the same time is, is pretty rewarding and very cool. Um, so I have at this point read all of the six gun that I have previously read and I have what there are eight or nine volumes left to go. So I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into the rest of that.
2: Got to tell you, that sounds like it could be a, uh, Chromecast Chronicle article in the future. Yeah, it might be the evolution of the weird Western in, in comic books or something. Yeah,
0: it might be. Uh, I don't know how much Six Gun was influenced by Preacher, but I know Preacher is just a cornerstone, you know, of of like I don't want to call it a modern classic because it was, you know, it came out in the nineties and that that's thirty years ago. But like it's still it's not like it's a, a golden age sort of idea, right? Right. And it's this very basic sort of road trip um through this hellscape of the american uh west, and um six gun is uh that you know a hundred years prior so I, I don't know it's it's cool
1: that's awesome, man, yeah. Uh, I need to read more of the six gun. The the six gun. I've just read, I guess the the first couple the first couple issues. So, I I love the whole conceit of it, and and the art is spectacular.
0: Oh, the art is yeah, it's it's not to be topped. Um, and I'm just here on uh, Oni Press's website. There there are some really good. It looks like the six gun, gunslinger editions are thirty dollars a piece right now. And they're normally a hundred. Which is insane. Like you can get the whole the whole thing for um pennies on the dollar right now.
1: Wow. Cool.
0: Yep. Nice, man. That's my those those are my things, weird westerns.
1: <laughs> Rap us out there, Luke. All right. So my my one thing, I guess, is going to be uh it's it's a it's a a magazine from the 70 uh i guess from the 70s and 80s uh i've picked up two of these used over the past few weeks uh and i'm not for sure when this episode's gonna drop it'll probably be at the end of the summer but i've picked these up over the summer uh and they are uh issues of whispers which was a horror magazine that ran through the 70s and the 80s so stewart david schiff was the the principal editor and then david drake was an assistant editor and forgive me if i don't if i if i mess up on any other folks that may have been other assistant editors but Uh, this magazine is is seminal. It's probably one of the high points in terms of the, the semi pro, uh, sort of like, like lit mag scene for, for, for our kind of genre that we're talking about here with the podcast. So I've picked up, uh, this is, uh, I guess, uh, issue fifteen sixteen, which is the, the Ramsey Campbell, Uh, special special issue uh was able to get it for pretty cheap and then i was able to pick up the double issue that's the last one of the magazine uh for for cheap on a books too and i'm ever vigilant to just see if i can snag any others there's there's a variety of uh double issues that i think are pretty cool there's one that's dedicated to fritz Leiber that has some super sweet art and it's all sort of like perfect bound wraparound cover type stuff. Like once you get into the, 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 the meat of the series, uh, the first issues are pretty pricey and are kind of, uh, like they're slimmer, you know, they're 50, 60 pages, that kind of thing. But once you get into the recurrent publication of the magazine, it's, it's damn near a paperback anthology, but with, extra stuff like essays and original art and all that stuff plugged in. And that's why I've just, I've found them for, for cheap and I've picked them up and I've started to delve into it. And it's mainly for the, the essay and the background material, like all of the extra stuff, right beyond the, the, the stories that are there. But like, for an instance, the Ramsey Campbell issue that just arrived a couple of days ago in the mail, it has a Carl Edward Wagner horror story, uh, which is cool beyond any measure. Which is one of his harder to find horror stories. That's you know anthologized in a paperback that you can't find anywhere for anything less than like three figures. Like it's a stupid hundred dollar price tag <laughs> for for a, for a for a fair or good graded paperback. But it has one of his stories, and then also Michael Shea, who is uh, author of the the sword and sorcery character Nithalene. Uh, and and wrote a variety of Cthulhu Mythos type stories. His, he has a a story in here, and there's there's just a mix of stuff. And of course, there's it's a it's a Ramsey Campbell century issue. so there's loads of Ramsey Campbell stuff in it too. So I guess what I'm saying is, uh, there's there's loads of these types of not, not necessarily ephemera, but just bits and pieces magazines that while you might not necessarily get, the complete story from a single author. Pick them up if you get the chance. Like, like to the, the they're near anthologies in and of themselves, and oftentimes a lot of the extra stuff that's in them sort of sells it.
0: Hold, hold that issue up again. I, I wasn't able to see the cover. Whispers. Who did the art? Did you say? I can't. I can't remember.
1: Uh, I'm not for sure. I can look it up. Uh, but but the cover is. Uh, dedicated to the famous Ramsey Campbell story, Macintosh Willie, which is something that's been anthologized to the moon and back. Let's see here. I can't see who did the, Oh, John Stewart did the cover art, which I'm not familiar with that name. The inside front cover has John Mayer, who we talked to a few just short episodes ago. Uh, And there's also art by Lee Brown Coy, as well as, uh, Hans Bach has the back cover. There's like that's loads cool. of art. Like that's part of the thing is like looking through these couple magazines, whenever I found them for like four, four and a half bucks on A books, I would look at the I, the IFSDB yeah. and I would I'd be just like, holy shit, I don't even know <laughs> what all's here. I just see a whole laundry list of names and it's a 200 page volume. I'm gonna I'm gonna buy that for four bucks. So yeah. so so, hop on it if you can. If you can find these kinds of things, again, the, you know, even if they're beat up, even if the 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 copy's all bent to hell, there's cool stuff there. Uh, so so yeah. So at this point, I am only holding in my hands two of the issues of Whispers, and it's kind of the midpoint and the very last ep- the the very last issue, but. There's a whole wide variety of them that I'm going to look for. There's also uh, you can find best of Whispers volumes one through maybe six or seven, I think probably uh, one through six. Uh, and if you can get those too, they're kind of the the greatest hits. Like uh, Whispers volume one has Carl Edward Wagner sticks in it, and that's kind of the big claim to fame. Like that's where sticks. You know, it was originally published. So, so you can get some like really seminal horror and sword and sorcery in Whispers. Awesome. Yep. That's my one thing. Sorry, sorry to meander. Sorry to to, to apologize <laughs> for.
2: Anything. That's what the like, one thing's for.
1: I'm like a I'm like a a, a book alligator just wallering around in the swamp. <laughs> that's, Whoa. Take, that's a
2: good tagline for our
0: show, really. Yeah, we take you down for a, a literary death roll. <laughs>
1: That's us. Uh, all right. Well, that's uh, three, two, one. That's our one thing. One thing. Cool, 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 boys. We're we're back. We're back after that super sweet little uh, musical interlude. Are we going to talk about some hard boiled stuff? What do you guys want to do? I think
2: so. They have never heard music like that in the the Los Angeles of Raymond Chandler. They, <laughs> they have never heard the sweet guitar licks of the one thing. All nope. they hear is piano music around them, I assume.
0: That's, that's the kind of thing a Lugans would listen to.
2: <laughs> What's a Lugans? I think it's
0: Man with a Gun. Yeah.
2: It seems econo- economical to call him a Lugans. <laughs> mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Saves some time. So where did we last leave off? Where did we leave off? <laughs> yeah, one of you guys tell me. Um, so I think, I think we left off we're around
0: the halfway point of the of the book which in my copy from uh vintage crime is about page 70 so that's that's around about the halfway point and we had discovered um a few things one um well and and there are some still some questions outstanding one of those things we know about is um that Geiger the porn um store uh, owner slash uh, photographer uh, had been killed, right? And I believe we last time had discovered who the murderer was. That's true. And the murderer was the valet, his jilted lover. <laughs> um, the valet whose name escapes me, but I have some notes. And it'll just take me a second.
1: <laughs> if you try to keep track of all of these names, it's so, tough. It's, a, it's a fool's errand, dude.
0: <laughs> um, it's it's Carol Lundgren.
1: There we go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so he thought that Geiger was um, uh, having an affair. I think. Is that right or no?
2: I think that Geiger. Geiger got killed by uh, the daughter's lover, and then oh, you're right.
0: Carol and, Lund, then, Carol and then Carol Lundgren, Lundgren found the body, him.
2: and then thought that Joe Brody had been the one that had killed Geiger, and so right. he goes off to wing him.
0: You're right. I was tricked by the same uh, the same hunch that Marlowe <laughs> tried to track down. We're, we're all right.
2: piecing it together all all as a team.
1: Yeah, uh, so so and, and the 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 levels of who who did what, like this is truly a story where either you need to uh watch the movie a half dozen times or read the book a half dozen times, or you gotta like build a murder board with everybody's names explicitly as you're reading along, right? Like it is for, for such a short and dense novel I'm not going to say that you've got to have like a, a, a PhD to, to disentangle it, but, but it is intentionally confusing.
2: Yeah. Uh, I've always wanted a murder board. I've always wanted like a thing with note cards and string tied around tacks. So maybe that's what I'll do for the la- one of the last books that we do in this.
0: You were right. I, I'm now looking at my notes more closely, and I'm a dummy.
2: I would never say that.
0: But but this is like early in the book, we we made a comment last time on the greenhouse and the tangle of of orchids that are beautiful that smell kind of rotten and sickly sweet. And um, I think that's a good sort of analogy for the the city, like the 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 west coast the setting that we find ourselves in here, and the interconnectedness of these characters as they go about kind of doing crimes to one another.
1: <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. So 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 Chandler is uh just am- amazing with his ability to sort of paint a picture in the way that he can actually invoke those types of uh you know, just 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 symbols and feelings that that you're hitting at, Josh. Like the the fact that it's like verdant growth and orchids, but yet fetid and and smells of death. Like like those those extra layers of he's using commonplace symbols to represent what he's trying to convey. You know, you know intentional like w- with some level of intention on the page and it sounds silly to like spell it out so plainly, but it's, it is very elegant in its uh, concise presentation. Like it's, it's not anything that's like super complicated layers deep. It's just very elegantly put together. And,
0: you know, this, you know, we always like to bring some biology into this because we're all biologists. And, and, Orchids, some orchids are epiphytes, right? They, they grow on other plants, maybe not necessarily parasitically, but they, they use other plants to help themselves in terms of uh, structure and, and com- competition for light and water and things like that. And it just strikes me as a, a fitting description, a fitting plant to use to describe some of the characters within this story
2: one of the other angles with the orchids I kind of like is I get the feeling everybody in this story, they really don't belong in California. Like everybody would be much happier somewhere else or back home on the farm. Seemingly in the orchids themselves, they don't seem like they belong there either. They have to be kept in this greenhouse and at such hot temperatures and stuff. They don't even really like California themselves, but like Owen Taylor, this guy that we're talking about, the chauffeur that commits murder, I think he's a Dubuque boy. He's from Iowa. And, comes out here and gets tangled up in all this and ends up dead with a suicide or from suicide off of a pier. It's just a, it's a big mess. Uh, Everybody has this veneer of respectability, but once you start digging a little deeper, no good. It's all rotten.
1: Yeah. I mean, who the hell wants to go to LA, man? Like all these people. (laughs) I ain't going, I ain't going to LA. I'm, I ain't going to Hollywood. I'm not gonna, gonna get into that. Uh, the the other thing that I would just draw attention to, and I, I do think it's intentional, but I don't want to I don't want uh, uh, be too general. But but the 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 presentation of orchids as a as a focal flower, and the fact that we have a couple of really m- messed up sister dames, and the the, the the sort of <laughs> the, the vaginal nature of a, of a of an orchid to to invoke a little I think that uh, I think that's intentional, too.
0: I think I think you're right., yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a couple of other motifs that play themselves out in the second half of the story that are introduced in the first half. And one that I really liked that I, I brought up last time was the n- sim- symbolism of the night. And so in the first half of the book, we have this knight uh, being depicted on some stained glass uh rescuing or, or protecting a damsel. And in this we get some internal monologue about what it means to be a knight and you could never be a a true knight in this environment in in the setting of the story because uh those people who are sort of altruistic um, or or unstained by the world find themselves on the wrong end of a gun. Um and even Marlowe himself kind of says, "Like this, this is no game for a knight." He's he's referring to a chessboard, but it's more than the chessboard. It's it's the game, the setting of the the story itself. And right. even Marlowe is he's no knight. Like he's kind of a a slimy dude when he needs to be to further his own ends. Not saying he's a bad guy, but he's also not really a good guy. And I think this kind of goes into who's the bad guy and who's the good guy here what do you guys think like at the end of the day in this story who's who's good who's bad (laughs)
2: who's the guy with the gun
1: yeah so 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 my impression of this story the thing that really comes across by the end of it after after Marlowe has his encounters with the two sisters at the back like the, the as we as we segue into like the third act of the of the story. So so Marlowe is piecing together the ultimate uh crime, but there's like a couple major loose ends and he has an encounter with both uh Vivian and the crazy sister. I'm spacing on Carmen, that's her name. So he's he has he has interactions with with Vivian and Carmen and and both of them leave him frustrated as well as I I would say the woman too. Uh, he's just a guy. Like by the time that he has his frustrations with Carmen, which obviously she is a a a, a bag of 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 of, uh, of neuroses. Yeah, I don't I don't know how. Like she she is clearly a troubled person, and also the way that uh that Chandler writes her a bad a bad character. Like that's his intention is not only is it a person that is troubled, but they are like at their core kind of evil, right? Like that's, that's my interpretation of at least that sister. But by the time that he meets her, when she's naked yet again, and he's seeing her naked (laughs) at this point, maybe this is number three. I don't even know. Uh, uh, it's at least two, but probably three. uh, he's just frustrated. And at one point there's this very sparse paragraph where he says "Like he basically has it up to here and he kicks her out of his apartment or his place. And he says, this is he, Marlo remarks. This is my place. This is essentially, I don't have much, but I've got, I've got at least, you know, four walls and a roof. And, uh, I had had it up to here and I basically gave her the boot. Uh, He's just a guy that's coping. And he, he remarks later, like the very tail end, I think when he's talking with Sternwood, Sternwood wants to know basically how many times he screwed up and basically reneged on taking payment. And he says, you know, not he, he doesn't say like the, the, the presumptive s- statement there is like, oh, this is the very first time that it's ever happened to me. He says, like, it, it happens. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. This is a fellow who is just coping, and he is clearly a, a, a stepper or, or so in front of the law, but he is not necessarily – he is not a superhero, much like the, the, the continental op from the other story not being a superstar, not being – somebody that, that has it all figured out. This is a guy that's just trying to cope. He's, he's just a little bit sexier and a little bit younger than the Continental Op. That's my impression.
2: Taller.
0: I, I think that he is um, more world-weary than the, the Op, at least in, in terms of how he comments on the world around him.
1: I think part of that is is the setting, like like Chandler versus Hammett. Chandler, like like what like like the L.A. West Coast city is seedy. It is not necessarily a uh, a burgeoning pioneer civilization. So so in Red Harvest, with that book, we have uh, Hammett. Painting like sort of frontier discussions. This story is late stage capitalism, which is what I tend to think about. Like with a lot of uh, classic noir movies, like anything that's that's in L.A. I mean L.A. and and ha- has this level of debauchery that's just sort of plugged into it, and that's that's brought that's brought here. Like with the sexuality and the the the, the frustrations of the family. And the money, it's it is it's it's almost like languishing in its uh like debaucherous nature. I don't know. I'm I'm kinda of fumbling over my words, but it's it's not uh th- there's no like drive for making money seemingly. It's a lot of this is the way the system's playing.
0: It's it's opulence, right? Like the money has already been made by these people. Um. Yeah. yeah. That, well said. Yeah. It's it's uh we have characters like um, um, you know, let me pull up my character list again because I've forgotten his name. Uh, Kanino, who's the the gunman for uh Mars. He
2: only wears brown. Right. Right. Right.
0: Is that? Is it Canino Yeah. Uh, who's who's out there making sure that players don't get out of line? Like the the game has to continue as is. Um, and I, I like that. I, I like that this is uh, analogous to. Um, my mind goes to uh, the Elric stories and the Melnibonians, like the the sort of decaying, rotting civilization of of these wealthy, kind of bored people who are just doing crimes for the sake of doing crimes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right on, man. Like this is uh this is more this is more this is more Moorcock or like Carl Edward Wagner style. Like if we're making the comparison to the Sword and Sorcery, like that's kind of the presentation here with the the, the Red Harvest story being more of a of a of an earlier SNS kind of tale, right? Like it's, it it I, I keep thinking about where they are on the North American map. And I don't know because I haven't read like loads of Continental Op stories, so I don't know how far we get. Dashiell Hammett writing that character, like d- does he reach the West Coast or anything like that?
2: But oh, he's a, I feel he's like a San Franciscan kid. Like he, I think that's where he comes. Yeah, right. That's where a lot, of, comes, this, yeah. right, where a lot it, of the stories
1: are. Right. Okay. Okay. But but still, like in that terminology, though, like it's kind of manifest destiny that's still playing out, For though. Sure. Yeah, so so I wonder about that kind of distinction. It seems like that is part and parcel. And I, I love the way that Josh like invoked Moorcock with uh with <laughs> with this Chandler story. I think that's that's right. Like opulence and and orchids and like uh oh these sisters, I can't tell them what to do. I'm just an old man that's you know, gonna gonna sit here in my
0: hothouse. And he doesn't really care what they do. Sternwood. like, he doesn't really care. He, um, he doesn't want his family's good name dragged through the mud. And so he has to, to make efforts to protect the family name. Um, but I think at some point he's, he's sort of more or less on his deathbed talking to Marlo and he's telling the guy, I think this is the same scene you were talking about a minute ago, Luke. Um, where he's like, uh I I just wanna know what happened uh-huh. to um to Rusty. Rusty. Yeah, I, I wanna yep. know I wanna know where he went, uh because I I thought he I thought he was cool. Reagan.
1: And yeah. and and Sternwood himself, admittedly, like, I don't know exactly where he would fall on the three by three grid of like Dungeons and Dragons, like classic alignments of uh, chaotic and neutral and lawful and good and neutral and evil. But dude is evil. Like, Sternwood is a bad guy. It's just a question of is he neutral in his actions. Like, he makes the remarks in the in the first stages. Like, that very first interaction that Marlowe has with him uh, about the fact that he's a rich son of a bitch. And he's got these couple daughters. And he... He can't keep them in line, but, you know, they come from from wild seed. Like it's it's kind of a like, you know, the girls will be girls because, well, hey, look what look what I did. Like he is a he's a bad dude. Uh, And he's fine with that. Uh, It's interesting that there's this fixation on on the Irish bootlegger the whole way through. You know, that's that's kind of a sad little little note to it all. Uh, but but Sternwood is is bad like he is he's uh, I, I need to rewatch and I know I know we probably all three of us would like to rewatch Sin City because I think we have talked about it last episode too there's a lot of connections with that old yellow bastard like that kind of storyline here <laughs> that's coming around I wish I would be able to remember more of that other than just Elijah Wood is a crazy ass like 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 mirror shaded serial killer with sharp sharp fingernails kind of, you know. And then uh, my mitts.
0: <laughs> I took his weapons, both of them.
1: That's the best. God, oh we yeah we need to watch Sin City. I'm excited. I just got like, I got super excited.
0: That's. Yeah, <laughs> that, that right there is a damn fine coat. Uh, it's so good uh and i i'm thinking about this in in terms of like who's good who's bad who's a knight and who's not and one character that seems to um be altruistic be be in the wrong game is harry jones what do you guys think of harry jones
1: He's damned, right? Like, this is a character that's in a classic, like, noir, hard-boiled fashion. Bad, like, wrong place, wrong time. Like, good, good, good soul, maybe. Uh, but, but it's a, it's a bad scene for him. And yeah. I love how, how we get the, the, the main character, Marlo, likes him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Marlo instantly likes him because he's got a lot of fight in him. My favorite part with Harry Jones is the, the difference in physicality between him and Marlo, which I feel like plays into the story. Like Marlo is a big dog playing in the big dogs game. And Harry Jones is a, is a little dog. He's a little fish. He doesn't really belong there. Kind of like what we're hitting at, And he gets eaten. He can't handle it. Not through any fault of his own. It's just a fact of life. Unfortunately, In in this case that he just wasn't ready to be there.
0: But in going out, he, he protects the the woman whose name I can't think of, like
2: Atkins.
0: his yeah. He he doesn't give up he doesn't give her up, even facing down certain deaths.
2: He pulls a J. Jonah Jameson. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who sends the pictures of Spider Man in, even though Green Goblin's gonna drop him off a building. Yeah, he's like <laughs> he's all about some honor there. And he ain't gonna rat. Yeah. Yeah. But I think this gets back to what you're talking about, Josh is that this isn't this isn't a story for nights. This isn't a city for nights. This isn't a time for nights. like there that doesn't get you anywhere in this except dead. uh you get you get some almond breath and some nasty bourbon.
0: yeah. Yep. yep i was I was thinking about what you were saying earlier about the the d and d alignment chart for Sternwood and whether he's neutral or whether he's lawful or, or, um, uh, chaotic. I don't think he's chaotic. Um, I think think he's, I think in one, in one scene, he's neutral. And in the other scene, he's, he's lawful, but he's straight up evil. Like you said, I agree with that. Um, but I think that when, uh, he commissions Marlowe to just find what happened to Reagan. Um, he that this is him being a lawful character he's he's trying to figure out how the rules got broken how the game got broken um whereas earlier it's just okay there are pictures of my girl out there and we need to get those back and maintain the status quo maintain maintain neutrality so in in that sense i think he's neutral in one scene and and lawful in another sorry I i spoke over you john
2: Oh, no. I was just going to say I totally – I think he's a lawful, evil character because he makes his money, quote-unquote, lawfully. Uh, he runs his business, quote-unquote, lawfully. He's a general, lawful. You know, like, all that stuff, to me, adds up to lawful. And his mirror image in this story is Eddie Mars, who is outside the bounds of the law, also evil. right? Uh, like, I think they're two sides of the same coin. They They are both big-time players – bad dudes bad hombres but just one of them follows the rules one of them has figured out how to exist outside of the rules but make the rules work for him like eddie mars is is a really slick dude in this whole story he he's a hooch runner he's got his hands in pornography he's got his hands on legal gambling illegal gambling like he knows it all information you name it this guy's got it and I th- I think he's the counterpart to Sternwood in this story.
0: And he's the guy that will point the gun but he won't pull the trigger.
2: Right. He just knows yeah, he knows who to send to pull the trigger.
1: Yeah, he's he's smart. He he is very elusive. He he's in the shadows, right?
0: Yeah. He's a cool character. We yeah. don't see him all that much. Yeah, it's funny. It's it's, it it's funny
1: how him and his uh his wife, what's what's Silver Silverwigs Silver uh Myra is that her that first name? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh like oh. actually how how much Omona? So, how much screen time they have versus their sort of presence in that third that third uh act of the story.
2: The night thing is really interesting that you've brought up, Josh, cuz like Sternwood and Mars are both kind of the dragons of the story. And Mona is essentially the damsel in distress. Or like that's what we're led to believe the entire time, but is actively a participant in the dragons game, like is helping the dragons. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: She's she's helping the dragons. She doesn't want to leave the dragons. Um she also doesn't necessarily want Marlo to be killed. Like, there's some chemistry between them, right? For sure. Yeah, so she's an interesting character because she, she does have agency. She's not just a victim of, you know, being swept up in the current of everyone else. But at the same time, she clearly can't go and do the types of things that she would prefer to do if she otherwise wouldn't be murdered.
2: <laughs> uh
0: yeah, the knight thing really kind of fascinated me uh reading through this and thinking about like what what is a knight anyway, but a like a a, a soldier in the service of of someone some higher, you know, land owning uh noble. Uh And so if you're a knight, you're the muscle, you're, you're, you're out there making the things happen. Um, and so in a sense, like, uh, Canino is, is a knight, he's just the, he's the black knight here. Um, or at least a a deeper shade of gray than Marlowe.
2: Uh, brown, he wears
1: brown.
0: Brown,
1: yeah. Okay. <laughs> Brown over and over again, right? Like that just gets hammered home. Uh one thing that I I I found myself thinking about with this story, and I'm curious about going forward, is this idea of of kind of Ronin. Like like oh. and, uh, like, it, it's just this idea of within these hard boiled stories, you're a hired investigator or you're a hired gun and you're checking out a story, but you're not necessarily the boss. You're just going not necessarily going through the motions, but you are answering to other people. And so the idea of uh being responsible and like the eth- the ethics of being a worker bee are something that come up to me. Like <laughs> it was even more apparent in this story. Like the last story with Red Harvest uh, Hammett's guy Intentionally screwed the rich The rich dude at the end he was like he was Going to do his stuff but in This story he did like 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 The Marlow doesn't necessarily Screw anybody he Just takes things a step further because he Has some level of emotional investment And I think that's a really Interesting Well to like pu- to, to delve into like that's one of the most interesting things to me so far of of just the two hard-boiled stories. But it's kind of an emergent thing with what I know of the the movies and the noir stuff that I'm acquainted with. Like what, what goes into being a worker bee like socially? Like what's your accountability for uh, sort of the moral indiscretions of the people above you? I think there's something really cool there to think about.
0: go johnny it looked like you were about to say something okay um I, when you were when you were saying that i i wondered if that was linked to like the way that Marlowe kind of approaches different characters in the the story has anything to do with how he sees women and how he might see um you know carmen versus um uh Silverwig. What what's what's her name? Mona. Mona, yeah. Uh so like there's this instant sort of attraction, this chemistry between Marlowe and Mona. Mm-hmm. But he clearly sees um Carmen for what she is. And, and has what? enough respect for, is it Vivian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the older sister. Like he has enough respect for her to at the end of the day not like he gives her the option I, in three days. If you're still in town, I'm going to tell the cops everything I know. Right. Um, giving her time to get the heck out of Dodge. Hmm. So he approaches all these women in different ways. Um. And I I wondered about like that sort of worldview, that sort of uh, approach affecting his worker Venus, like his uh, algorithm. Response to different scenarios based upon how the women, or how he perceives the women. I don't mm-hmm. know if what I'm trying to say is is clear or not, but it it seems like there's something there.
1: I I I, I agree. I kind of get what you're picking up that like there's so so Carmen is. Infantile in her responses. She's childlike in her demeanor. She's like hypersexualized, and she's a monster uh, in a lot of ways. And she she is absolutely like Tara Reed in the uh, the the air mattress in Big Lebowski, like that that persona. Like the Coen Brothers pulled <laughs> Carmen and and dropped her into that that uh, swimming pool. And the big Lebowski. Like, that's that's her uh, instance where where uh, the dude is coming into contact with her for the first time and seeing the toe and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and she's, she's... While she's evil in a lot of ways, she is not necessarily knowledgeable or in a place of power, right? Like, she ultimately drives the narrative, but she's not necessarily a mover or a shaker. She's just, like... Uh, such a train wreck that she's like making, making porns with Geiger and, uh, murdering people out of spite and doing all of these things that are machinations of the plot. But she is not ultimately at the level like Vivian is, is someone that is, has some level of accountability. Like the fact that she is covering for her sister and the things that she ultimately does and that shakes out with her like, she is m- as morally corrupt as Carmen because she's uh, smarter. Like, that's what's presented. Th- that's the way I interpret it. Like, like she has more responsibility, so she has more culpability.
0: Does that make sense? There, there's another layer of um, mental illness with, with uh, Carmen that isn't present with Vivian. And I wanted to to bring that up and see, like... In the end, we see her wanting Marlo to teach her how to shoot a, a pistol. And evidently, this is the same play that she made to get rid of Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at some point, like he, Marlo loads the gun with blanks because he suspects that she is, has done this and, and this is her M.O. And she kind of has a seizure after after the fact and passes out. And I wanted to see if you guys perceive that as a um a ruse or or is that legitimate?
2: I think it's real. Like I think I don't think of her as a victim in this story, but I think of her more as a force of nature. Like Luke was saying she's not a mover and a shaker, and I agree with that, but she's also she is she's the hidden design in things, right? Like she's the you don't know what she's gonna do, and she's the one that's killed people, and has sort of set all of this in motion, even though it wasn't in her power.
1: It's it, so, so, so within noir type stories, oftentimes there's this, 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 this fatalism and this tragedy that's a manifest of just, I don't want to say randomness, but uh, like some sort of emotional reaction, right? Like, like at the end of the story what it really came down to was so and so's heart was broke so they murdered the heartbreaker right and and the grand reveal is something along the lines of it came down to this very base emotional animalistic response and that's the uh, that's the the overall structure of the narrative is the fact that it everything else all of this crazy ass sociology all of this crazy societal structure is built around that base screw up right and i, I really do feel like you can take something like a uh, blade runner or like a, a a far-flung like science fiction uh, uh cyber kind of inspiration from the hard-boiled stories and take those sort of base screw-ups like, at a, at a humanistic level, and all of the cool, complicated science fiction that's thrown on top of it, really what they want to get down to is that kind of screw-up. She is a very base or animal character, and she, but she is ultimately the driver of the plot. Like, without her, like, Vivian doesn't have accountability, and the whole story doesn't move. You need this uh, childlike... I use dumb in the, like... Unrecognizing sort of sense this dumb character that's just like motivated by pure sort of feral instinct kind of kind of character to motivate everything else that happens
2: I like what you're saying, and for me uh w- so when we get to this reveal that she's the the hidden thing in all of this that she's the one that's caused all of these problems. It is the least satisfactory possible answer. Like when you read a mystery novel, you know, you you often get this nice bow on top of it, like, oh, you know, okay, everything lines up. I followed the clues. In this, it's a mess. Everybody's a mess. Everything is a mess. Every clue is a mess. And the fact that in the end, it's just this jilted toddler in a vixen form that causes everything is really the most is the least satisfactory thing that could possibly happen like you're you want it to be oh mars bumped him off because he's jealous that his his girl stepped out with him or there's something like there's got to be some societal angle to this when really it's just you know it could have happened to any any dude that wandered into their life uh-huh. if, he, if he crossed paths with Carmen so
1: so a question then for you guys uh, just to kind of like move the conversation forward. Do you like that? Like, what is your feeling of of that intentional uh, unhappiness? Like, that's intentional by, by, by the way that Chandler's writing. He is writing that for his protagonist, Marlowe to be pissed and taking a drink. And he can't satiate the feelings that he's got in his head. And that's how the story ends. But it's also intentional that that's how the reader's supposed to feel. So, what do you guys feel about that as a as a as a narrative device?
2: Chef's kiss. I love it. It's why it's hard boiled, right? That's why this is one of the things that I picked for the season because that's part of it. Like that's part of crime. That's part of real life. That's why this is hard boiled. Is that there isn't a neat little bow to put on things? Marlowe doesn't get the satisfaction, even that the op, got of like putting a rich guy in his place or anything like it's all just stacked against him top Mm -hmm. to bottom everybody's a bad person he's never going to reckon with his feelings on these things and even if there was love in the air with any of these women you know big fart noise like there's nothing that can come of it because it's all wrapped up in this nasty game and all he can do is survive it it's it's great. Like the fact that he's unsatisfied, I'm unsatisfied. We've all been mystery blueballed. It's perfect.
1: Dude, that is that's the best term. That's exactly right. Yeah, Josh, what do you think about it?
0: Uh, i I ultimately liked it too, but it's as I said earlier in the episode, it is not satisfying, right? and and John is getting at why that is a, a, a pretty cool thing. Um, and to take it one step further, like the, the whole, um, machinery of this story, like you, Marlo can't do anything to change it. Um, he, if he, if he works, uh, within the confines of the law, it, it won't work. Right. He's, he's hamstrung. If he goes outside the law, then maybe he can take out one or two of these guys. But Mars is so insulated that, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's tough to get to him. Um, Right. And, and if you do it, you have to compromise yourself. So what do you, what do you really win in the end? Like you're, you're going to get yourself just as dirty as the guy that you're trying to take down. Um, It's, it's very good. Um, And I love the last two paragraphs on, uh, on the last, the last page. So good. This, this whole thing about the, the big sleep, um, man, it's, it's good.
1: Read it. Do you want to read, do you want to read it, dude? Yeah.
0: What did it matter where you lay once you were dead in a dirty sump or in a marble tower on top of a high hill? You were dead. You were sleeping the big sleep. You were not bothered by things like that. Oil and water were the same as wind and air to you. You just slept the big sleep, not caring about the nastiness of how you died or where you fell. Me, I was part of the nastiness now. Far more part of it than Rusty Reagan was. But the old man didn't have to be. He could lie quiet in his canopied bed with his bloodless hands folded on the sheet, waiting. His heart was a brief, uncertain murmur. His thoughts were as gray as ashes. And in a little while, too, like Rusty Reagan, would be sleeping the big sleep on the way downtown i stopped at a bar and had a couple of double scotches they didn't do me any good all they did was make me think of silver wig and i never saw her again that's good like i get i get uh, goosebumps from it like absolutely, absolutely. it's uh, standing in the face of this unchangeable sort of corruption and realizing I can do nothing about it and we're all just we're all just dead meat. Like this is kind of uh kind of cosmic horror in a sense. <laughs> and uh, his his only thought was of this woman that he can never have and that he never would see again.
1: Yep. I to me I I, I loved everything that you read, Josh. I love the last the last couple paragraphs where it really sort of hammers home the the intentions of the author, and maybe somebody would read it as fisted, but we're reading a hard-boiled story, so I think that's I think that's excusable. Like it really does kind of kind of come home in the last few paragraphs, but the final sentence is 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 the ultimate like the like John already said the the chef's kiss like the uh, <laughs> never saw never saw her again. That is that is the beauty that's that that is the ultimate uh stomp uh, stomping out of the cigarette on the on the the curb like the the smushing out of any hope that there may have been something good with the story
2: good job Raymond
0: yeah man yeah hey, man yeah this is a good one and I at first did not like it as much as Red Harvest and at the end of it I liked it more. And and we didn't even get into the, the uh the fact that the uh the whole time Reagan was in an oil sump, uh, which is where this family made their money, um, just as dirty as, as you can be. Yep. It's it's very good.
1: Yeah, I think there's I, – I know we're about to wrap up here and there's a load of stuff that could be talked about. And I feel like a little bit with this story, it's kind of the same way that whenever we talked about uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? We kind of like – we spent some time talking about this big narrative and then we also have a, a, a laundry list of things that we could have talked about. The, the symbolism of of what you just hit on Josh and capitalism and sort of like how money is funneled into the the story that's that that's part of it i I, I mentioned this last episode like the the uh, the the sort of sexual fr- the sexual frustration in this story is really palpable and at least in the front half there's some, some pretty mean streaks of uh, uh, sort of like sexual sort of hatred and hatred against, uh, you know, against Geiger's lover. that that's the main thing that comes up the way that the, the way <laughs> the way that Marlowe talks about Carol. Uh, but but all throughout the story, there's a lot of sexual sexual frustration and also, uh just just funky sexiness to it it's it, and i think it's all this west coast stuff and i think it ties into this sort of debauchery kind of kind of kind of headspace which i think with reading older stories like or or more recent stories actually like like as we get into that it'll hopefully become more apparent but there's that and then there's like this whole uh what it accounts to 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 manifest destiny like there's there's extra layers to this we could keep talking about for sure
0: yeah i agree
1: uh so so in terms of of wrapping this up on a on a realistic timeline so that we're not going for like 3 hours tonight so that we're only, <laughs> so that we're only talking for an hour or an hour and a half something like that are there other major themes that you guys do want to hit on things that we haven't, haven't stated about the endings of it, uh, that we want to get to,
2: I think my wrap up piece would just be, you know, we started with Dashiell Hammett, who's considered sort of a forefather of this genre and this kind of fiction. Um, Raymond Chandler. And then the person we're going to follow him up with James Kane, they're considered refiners. They're people that came in and worked in this area and sanded off some of those rough edges and, create and helped create the solid foundations of what we now know today as hard-boiled fiction and noir fiction uh i i really felt like i saw that leveling up like i'm not saying i think chandler is an infinitely better writer than hammett i love hammett but i do see this as a progression within the hard-boiled canon like there things have been have been upgraded a little bit and i didn't know if you guys felt the same way
0: uh, I did. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the way in which we see um, in uh, Red Harvest the, the machinations of everyone in Personville uh, sort of get rearranged by the, the actions of the op and ultimately like it's leading toward martial law. But hopefully on the other side of that, you, you come out with a, a change, right? A societal change. And the, the seed of doubt is planted. Like, you know, can, can this old man who's been in charge of this city, you know, uh, more or less be displaced by this, but at least you see some change here. There's, there's not, there's nothing. Um, it's, it's, uh, looking up at the, the night sky and realizing that you're a speck in the, the grand scheme of things.
1: Yeah, I, I I feel similarly that this is a a building kind of progression that we're seeing here. I know up to this point we've we've made some references to Chandler, uh, kind of in relation to like Moorcock or Wagner as like the 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 sword and sorcery comparisons, but I think with his kind of intentionally complicated plot structure and with his with his presentation of things he might even be like like uh and i know this is a little bit like hokey to just like try to make these one-to-one comparisons but he's he's the the intentional complications of the plot and the, the the complicated narrative that's spooled out i also thought of like fritz Leiber. With, with what we read with the, the Fawford and Mouser stuff, it's taking what would be uh, a more simplified Howard uh, Sword and Sorcery Tale, and it's making it that much more complicated with other shades of grey, and also, you know, not just dealing with it in 40 pages, but unspooling it across a couple hundred pages, which I know that uh, Chandler took at least two stories, if not four stories and kind of smushed them all into the novel that we're reading here, which is another cool kind of thing to, to think about. But, uh, he's playing with a cool genre. Like he's, he is definitely taking it steps further than what Hammett did. And it's, it is a very much clear comparison to me with, how this is manifesting with the hard boiled stuff is what we see within the, uh, the the progression of the sword and sorcery stuff.
2: Look at us criticizing literature.
1: <laughs> and
2: it's the, it's the roll.
1: it's so much fun, dude. I uh, this was this was so cool. I, I really did love talking about talking about Chandler stuff uh and it 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 gets to like that classic west coast la (laughs) how we started the episode talking about you know uh uh reflections in the in the puddle and like a string of pearls and all of that kind of stuff like it's what you think about with noir like the what the, the stuff that's shown here is is that for sure
2: uh where are we going john What's the next stories? Bada bing, a good transition. Uh, up next, we are going into a double film feature. Our episodes will be about two James Kane stories that were turned into the screen. We know that we've been doing stories so far, uh, but we wanted to jump into film. We always try to feature a film, at least in each of our seasons. And this go around, we're going to do Mildred Pierce and Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity is one of my favorite all-time movies. It is an amazing noir. And Mildred Pierce is considered sort of a classic of the hard-boiled genre. They both give us an insight into James Kane, who is a contemporary of Raymond Chandler, who's sort of the other person that's considered the, the refiner of some of this hard-boiled stuff. He got started a little earlier. His book, The Postman Always Rings Twice, came out in '34. And this one came out in 39 that we just went through. But Chandler had been writing short stories before that. But in terms of novels and novellas, I think James Cain kind of got the jump on him. But Mildred Pierce, a 1941 novel, also became a film in Uh 1945, which stars Joan Crawford. Very excited to see that. I don't know about you guys. I think it will be a lot of fun.
1: Nice, dude. Yeah, I'm excited. There's also an HBO uh, uh, miniseries that's Mildred Pierce that I might try to watch. I'm not going to promise too hard, but I'm going to try to get through that alongside the movie.
2: It sounds like we need to re or watch uh, the the Sin City movie with this too. Maybe we'll make a triple feature.
1: Maybe. Well, do we get do we get triple cre- credit if we watch The Departed too for the <laughs> double double <laughs> indemnity? <laughs> sure. So, so we watch all of the hard-boiled movies that we can. <laughs> for and then if you, go watch, if you go retroactively, you go back and watch Lebowski, you get an A for the class.
0: That's it. If you, yeah. <laughs> you're
2: done. I, I do think it's important to note that Double Indemnity, which is a 44 film directed by Billy Wilder, uh, it is based on James M. Cain's 1943 novel, also called Double Indemnity, But the script the the uh, is co-written by Wilder and Raymond Chandler. Oh shit! So tie it all together. So it's almost like we know what we're doing.
1: So so base of the pyramid for for the next episode movies are Double Indemnity and classic Mildred Pierce, right? Correct. Right. And then other things that could be icing on the cake would be Sin City. The Big Lebowski, Mildred Pierce, HBO series. Uh, what else? Are there any others to add on that?
2: Oh, there's so many. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you said something about The Departed.
1: Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Departed, yeah, for sure. I feel
2: like we're building, when we were kids and we had the food pyramid, like Double Indemnity, Mildred Pierce, they're the bread on the bottom. That's what we need uh-huh. the biggest. These other things are the fruits, vegetables, and fats and oils that that make up the smaller bits. But that's where we're headed. I'm excited. Yeah, uh, it it's a it's sh- a movie it's a movie episode next time, right? It's true. Yeah. Right.
1: That's cool. I'm excited. I uh, I treasure I treasure these times to talk about stories, and even if they're even if they're sad sack like sad bastard stories, I love them. Me too. <laughs> Somebody's got uh,
0: how, <laughs> if, you, if you love sad sack stories, then direct your browser over to the com where you can see uh, prior episodes of three Lugans um, talking about pulps throughout uh, the last, I don't know, what, almost 10 years, 8 years, 9 years, eight something. Years. Yeah, and counting. And uh, you can interact with us on the social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. And you can call us and leave a voicemail. That number is 859-429-CROM. Yep. That's it. That's. Let's go to the cinema. (laughs)
1: Let's go to the movies. It's it's at least air conditioned. Uh, It'll be nice and cool. (laughs) At least. Get in there. Have a
2: cry, maybe at the end of it. I don't know. We'll be there for each other at the end. Holy cow! Our first episode came out July first, two thousand thirteen. <laughs> Almost eight years to the day.
0: Almost eight years to the day. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but who cares? I'm
1: just gonna keep on, dude. We're like that uh, that big old monolith, just hulking down the road. We're a part of the filth now.
0: Yeah, we're the filth.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> there, there is no big <laughs> sleep.
3: <laughs> alright bye everybody see you down the road Cause I'm having a good time, having a good time I'm a shooting star leaping through the sky Like a tiger defying the laws of gravity I'm having a ball